Hey, this is Big Germ, and you're listening to Running It with Nate Sexton. Running It with Nate Sexton is brought to you in part by Innova Champion Discs, makers of the Disc Catcher. The Innova Disc Catcher is installed on more courses worldwide than any other target. Hello, Disc Golf fans, and welcome back to another episode of Running It with Nate Sexton. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. He is the Innova Team Captain and 2017 United States Disc Golf Champion, but most importantly, our host, Mr. Nate Sexton. Nate, how you doing today, man? I'm great. I'm uh, back in my hometown visiting family. Haven't been here for many months. Uh, excited to be here and yeah, excited to do the show. Oh, man, thank you very much for taking this time out. You're on vacation, spending a little time with the wife and Coraline and visiting Oregon. And you said, we're going to get this show done one way or the other. I'm bringing my rig with me and we're going to make it happen. So um, I'm, I'm excited about being able to, to do that. Well, Nate, we have another amazing episode coming up. But before we do that, everyone knows we got to pay some bills. Guys, our friends over at FisherDiscGolf.com are doing amazing things in the disc golf community right now. They're out there sponsoring tournaments, doing course cleanups. Hopefully, you're following them on social media at FisherDiscGolf, or you visited their website at FisherDiscGolf.com. They're constantly adding new discs. Every time I hop on there, there's some new plastic. They're really going strong on the Innova brand. Obviously, that's what Nate throws. Um, they're really stacked those up. So just hop on there, check them out. If you haven't had an opportunity to recently, check them out again for the first time. Because every time you check out this new website, they've got new stuff on there. It's just, uh, it's really cool. They're doing a lot of special sales. Uh, you have to follow their website, their social media. I think sometimes maybe they don't even know what it is. They say, hey, let's go ahead and run this. I know over the 4th of July, they ran buy three discs, get one free. Uh, so there's a lot of awesome sales and, and updates that they have going on there. The guys over at Fisher Disc Golf have been a huge supporter of running it with Nate Sexton. And the best way to support the podcast, and if you enjoy what we're doing, is head over to FisherDiscGolf.com and get yourself some new plastic, some new apparel. They've got some Fisher hoodies and dry fits and hats. Um, you know, they're just expanding every single day. And it's awesome to see that from a from a, a little, little company that's just started to build up. So it's really awesome. We really appreciate everything they're doing. Disc Stacks is still a thing, guys. Uh, you can hop on there. They're doing it once a week now. They've kind of cut that back a little bit, probably because they're running out of plastic, just like everybody else. FisherDiscGolf.com. Check them out. And Nate, just for listening to this show, everybody gets a little bit of an extra bonus, a little more of an incentive to head over to Fisher Disc Golf, right? Yeah, for your first purchase, use our code RUNIT10 to save 10% at checkout. Shipping is always free. Obviously, you could buy discs online at a ton of different places, but only one of them helps support this show, and that's Fisher Disc Golf. That's right. And we've talked so many times about the official snack of running it with Nate Sexton, and that is our friends over at Double G Craft Jerky. Nate, there is so much going on at Double G, including now available to Canadian residents. They hey, were able to right. get the... Yeah, they were able to get the deal signed up. So uh, I've gotten a ton of different messages. If you guys are listening, you can go ahead and uh, and order up in the great north now and get Double G Craft Jerky. It's a, It should be a staple 
and your disc golf bag. It should be somewhere in between your destroyer, your firefly, and your firebird. You should have the double G craft jerky right there, ready to go. They've been another huge supporter of this. We're actually going to have Garrett on because they've got a bunch of exciting announcements uh, coming up. But he did go ahead and help us out with a little bit of a code for some of our listeners. They're adding a bunch of new flavors. They got a bunch of stuff going on. They want you guys to hop in and try it out. Go to doublegcraftjerky.com, pick out three bags, and go ahead and use that code again, run it 10, and save 10%. Nate, I know you've been munching on this jerky like crazy. I know Double G's a friend of yours. He just dropped 684 feet in that distance competition to take at home. Uh, there's just a, there's no better snack to, to support the show and just to support an awesome guy out on tour. Yeah, for sure. It's a, a new company. They're doing good things, helping uh, with the Double G Children's Foundation. They're helping get PDGA memberships for disadvantaged kids. The jerky's great. That's all I really need to say. And, man, I'm so glad we got a code now. Save some people some money. Get yourself a, a couple bags. Try a couple flavors. I can't imagine you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, they've got uh, they got a bunch of cool stuff going on, including uh, working with Paul's Foundation and, and doing what they can to uh, to help some people out. So just amazing things that they've been going on. And uh, Nate, we have a new sponsor coming onto the show here, and this is something that you guys have been emailing and messaging us about, and it's going to happen. There's going to be some Running It with Nate Sexton merchandise available. And the only place that's going to be available is through VII Apparel. Now, Nate, you've already got a little bit of a uh, relationship with the guys over at VII, right? Oh, yeah. We've been working together for a little while. They make great stuff, polos, jerseys, all kinds of things, even like joggers, all kinds of pants. They're they're a small company, but a great company. And they make uh, the green line fabric that's with all the recycled bottles and everything. So it's it's really like a nice feel and also uh, comfortable and doing something good with using uh, recyclable materials to make that fabric. So really excited to have them on board and excited to wear a running it shirt. That's going to be fun. I can't wait to see this running it uh, apparel. It's, it's going to be available at viiapparel.com. Guys, you've probably seen those VII shirts. They're the official jersey partner of Joe Mez. They're the official jersey partner of Nate Sexton. They're the official apparel partner of the Disc Golf Pro Tour. Uh, they're just doing amazing things out there. They're getting this set up. And you guys can also get something set up at their Disc Golf Pro Shop. Start your own Disc Golf apparel line with VII. So if you're a touring pro or just a local bigwig, uh, they're going to help you design your own jersey kit. They're going to sell it on their store. For each item sold, you're going to get a commission back, and they handle everything. Receiving the order, getting it made up, shipping it directly to the customer. Guys, check out viiapparel.com and keep an eye out for running it with Nate Sexton merchandise coming your way. I'm super excited about it. The Sexton Firebirds are dropping like crazy. Everybody's going nuts uh, on these things. I know we talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, how do you like the the twenty one stamp? Oh, I think it's cool. I, I think it, I, I asked for like a little more um, like realism and and like detail, uh, and I think they delivered. Like where the feathers are a little more intricate, I kind of like that look a little bit better. So I think the artwork's sweet. Uh, I think they're doing a great job with the releases. Uh, I know everybody's still, uh, you know, waiting to get one, but you, I, I've said this many times, but you got to realize it's, you're not dealing with like 
this is not Amazon. Innova has a, a dedicated crew of really hardworking people, but that's a lot of discs to get out the door in one day. So they're, they're doing their best and there's going to be more drops and I hope everybody can stay patient and get one ideally for retail price. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited. I've uh, I was lucky enough to get my hands on one, so I've got one coming my way, and uh, you know exactly what I'm doing with that thing, Nate. I'm firing it right up on eBay for the highest. No, <laughs> my my name's going on the back of it. It's going in my bag, and I'm going to throw it into trees because that's what discs are meant to do. So, um, Nate, we've got a uh, we're coming off of a big show, a ton of downloads for uh, you and Jeremy and myself, just kind of chatting about worlds. Um, fans were really happy to have us back. It's so overwhelming to see all of the all the love that you guys share. I can't thank you enough for that. And you certainly did not disappoint with our, our next guest. And I like that we get to kind of bounce around and we get to talk to some of the new people coming up in disc golf. And then we get to talk to some of the staples uh, that have been around for a long time and have, have done so much in this sport. Nate, who are we running it with today? We got an old school player that's still doing it today. Today we've got a guy who was twice the world's runner up in the late 90s to Mr. Ken Climo, the former world distance record holder for both the backhand and the forehand, and an author with disc golf books out on the market, and maybe a guy who's taught more clinics and lessons than anybody. Today we have Mr. Scott Stokely on the show. Thank you guys very much. I'm honored. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Yeah, man, you bet. Are you in Corvallis then? I am. Because I'm going to be there in about a month or a month and a half for the tournament. For, really? Yes. Which tournament are you coming to play? The Corvallis tournament. Great. <laughs> I don't know the name. I, Great. They, they kind of blur together, but I know yeah, I, I get went that. online and signed up a couple about a week ago. Awesome, man. Well... We might as well get this story right out of the way. I've told this before, but uh, bring up Scott Stokely and Corvallis. It comes right to the origin of me getting serious about disc golf. Because in 2001, you came here and you did a clinic. And I was there and I was probably 15 or so. And uh, you were the first person I saw do the X step. I, first person I ever saw throw probably 400 plus, And you were probably going 500 plus that day. But... I hadn't even seen 400 yet. So absolutely like a formative, like mind-blowing moment for me was going to that clinic, watching you do your thing, and just getting to pick your brain and buy some discs from you and go straight up to the course and try to replicate what I had just seen. No, and I love that. You know, I took 13 years off from the sport from 2001 to 2014, and I wasn't sure what connection I had you know, to the earlier days of the sport. And then it turns out that a number of the players on tour came to my clinics as, as kids or teenagers. And it made me feel immediately connected to the modern golf game, even though I'd aged out physically in some ways, it was really nice to know that you and Greg Barsby and Gerthy and Wiggins and, and others had come to my clinics and I, you know, yeah. that I touched in some way. It was cool. Yeah, I can I can remember three things clearly from that day, uh, and I'll tell you them all. The the first was the first thing you did when we got there, and this was just at like the soccer fields where I played my Saturday soccer. So it was a park that I'd been in a ton. I remember you got a basket. You had like a van. You, you had a basket. 
I remember you starting the clinic, introducing yourself. There's, you know, however many of us were there, all excited. I remember you walked away to like what I remember being about 80 feet away. And you said, you know, from this range, I don't even really try to make it. I just try to throw it up in the air. And you threw one and it went in. And my mind was already blown. So job done. 25 seconds into the clinic. (laughs) (laughs) The next thing I remember is obviously you crushing discs, throwing like big 450, 500. It's hard to even conceptualize how far they were going because to me they looked like they were going 10,000 feet compared to what I had seen and and the players that were in my area so that was incredible and then the other way you blew my mind which I didn't understand for a long time but now I kind of do is you went you ran a random doubles at our home course and I remember the guys like the the designers wanted you to play the course so bad I remember they were offering you a hundred dollars to play the course and you said no and 15 year old me who all I like to do was play disc golf anyway and I probably didn't hardly have a hundred dollars. Was like, what? He, what even is this guy? Like, he doesn't want to play for a hundred bucks. But now I kind of get it because because now I understand the grind you were on and all the stuff you were doing and yeah, the wear and tear on the body. But those are the three things that like will stick with me for the rest of my life about that day and meeting you and getting to see you do uh, uh, one of your clinics. No, I think that's awesome. And the funny story I tell about you is that when I came back after 13 years, I ran into you at the Crucible in Athens, Georgia. Yep. And and you walked up to me and said, I've been waiting. The first words out of your mouth, you said, Scott Stokely, I've been waiting 13 years to shake your hand. And you told me the story about, you know, me teaching you some, you know, some things related to disc golf. And I remember in my head thinking, why would you have done that? I will never let you live that down. <laughs> Oh, man. But, no, it's cool, man. Like I said, I mean, just to connect to the modern generation is neat. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, cool. Enough enough about that day. I want to get into your disc golf career and and your beginnings in the game. So I know you're a Southern California guy, technically a Hollywood uh, a guy, which which makes sense. You know, you got a, a big personality. So maybe that maybe a little bit of that comes from your hometown. But uh, I know you started around like – 19 mid 70s as a junior player yeah so i i played my very first round of disc golf we'll we'll call it frisbee golf uh, on the world's first frisbee golf course when it was the only permanent course in the entire world wow so i literally started at the very beginning Um, i don't however consider myself part of that generation because i was seven years old so i wasn't really part of the community or anything, but I, I was there. Then uh, I moved closer to the course when I was 11, and that's when I started playing every day. I went from a blue-collar neighborhood to a rich, white, conservative neighborhood that I just didn't fit into at all. You know, like, I had the least expensive bicycle. I had the, you know, like, I just didn't blend with that world. But right across the street was Oak Grove Park, which was a bunch of regular blue-collar hippie folks that adopted me and that was the community i found as a kid i was the only kid out there every day yeah but those were my peeps and that's when i started playing every day yes i'm curious like you know imagine a world listeners where there's one disc golf course in the entire world and it's like you already know everyone listening to this show already knows that weird look you sometimes get when you say you play disc golf that would have been no one's even heard of this. Like, I'm curious how how does a seven year old even 
even end up there? And how did you guys learn about the sport? And, you know, was that something your parents were kind of already into Frisbee? But, like, to imagine finding it when there's only one course in the world and it's only been in the ground for about a year. Uh, what what do you know about that? I mean, I know you were only seven, sure. but I, I imagine you've been told some stories. No, I mean, so it wasn't weird to me because, well, my dad died when I was seven. So my mom would take me to the different parks in the area. And almost every kid probably has this experience. Uh, there's the one park with the, the biggest merry-go-round, another park with the largest swing set, another park that has a tree that you always climb. And one of the parks had a Frisbee golf course, but that wasn't weird to me. That was no different than a merry-go-round or a swing set. It was sure. just that park's activity. I didn't know it was special. I, I had no clue. Um, by the time I started playing every day, there was about 75 courses uh, by 1981. But yeah, it, it was just a recreation in the park. It was just a thing that, I mean, we did, we had no idea that it was historic. That's for sure. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah, then you're just a kid playing all the time, honing your skills. I'm sure kind of getting uh, annoyingly good to some of the older guys uh, over the years. And then you kind of just kept playing into your teenage years. Yeah. I mean, I, from age 11 on, I, I basically uh, would get out of school and just go straight to the park until dark. And then by the time I was 13 or 14, I would get dropped off at school. I would go to my locker, get my second bag of discs out, put my books in, go play all day during school, come back, put my books back in the, or my discs back in the locker, grab my books and then go home, eat, and then go back to the park. Uh, and, and then by the time I was 15, I just stopped going to school completely to play Frisbee every day. And, you know, the funny thing about that is to this day, parents come up to me and ask me, how can I support my kid's disc golf career? What can I do to help my kid get better? And I, my response is always, do you want me to answer in front of them? Because you're not going to want my answer. And when they say, oh, yeah, of course, you know, I say, pull your kid out of school. Tell them to play Frisbee all day. They'll get, they'll get good. <laughs> By the way, I told my daughter the same thing. I'm not a hypocrite, you know, but that's what I did. I mean, that, that was my passion. I didn't like doing other things. I liked playing Frisbee. And, you know, I call it Frisbee because it, it was Frisbee back then. Sure. Uh, and I call it that today just to annoy the people that want to correct you, but they're not allowed to correct me because I, I was there. <laughs> but, but that's what it was. It was, you know, I was obsessed with playing, you know, no different than like every player in the NBA. I, I'd be willing to bet if you ask their moms, they would tell stories of their kid shooting free throws until midnight and having to tell them to go to bed. Yeah. Like when, when you want to get some, good at something, there is an obsession that kind of goes along with it. And and so I had that same obsession that anybody does about something that they live for. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you're obviously you're getting pretty good. You start to think about like some junior tournaments. Uh, was it was it your mom that was kind of enabling that and bringing you to the tournaments? Or was there like some guys at the course taking you under taking you under their wing and saying, hey, man, there's an event coming up. Like, let's get over there. We got to see what you can do. Okay, so there was basically no such thing as a junior tournament. Kids didn't really play. Uh, there was, well, the culture of the sport was very counterculture, very hippie. Uh, a lot of elements that a lot of parents probably wouldn't have wanted their kids to be around back in the early days. Sure. And, um, and the players were younger. As they got older, their kids played. But there was that window there where it was just the, the hippies were out there playing. 
And so I played my first tournament. I was the only kid in the entire tournament. And um, I ended up getting a trophy first place juniors, but I was the only kid in the tournament. Um, I went out to the Nevada State Championships and there was four kids. And that was my first junior tournament and my last junior tournament. Or no, my second to last junior tournament. After that, it was you played pro. Yeah. Um, there, were, there was no amateur division. Yeah. Everybody showed up, entered the tournament and played. So technically we were all pros. Um, even though skill levels didn't necessarily reflect the title. Sure. Um, so I was playing with adults. And so when I was, I, I, I played in the 1985 wintertime open when I was 15 years old and I didn't know that I was that good and I'd only played a couple tournaments. So I'm not even sure I knew all the rules, but I finished third place and I was wow. playing against, I was playing against world champions from the seventies. Uh, literally multiple world champions were there and, and I went, oh my god! I'm like, I'm good. Like, I really didn't know. Yeah. Um, and then I'm in the finals, playing in front of a gallery, and I'm like, what's going on here? I was play- I tied Snapper Pearson, who wow. is like second generation Hall of Famer, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, so it, 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 I did get good quickly, but I, you know, well, I say good quickly. I've been playing for years, but I was, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a clue. And, uh, and by the way, that's getting good early isn't necessarily good for kids. <laughs> um, I had I had a horrible ego and attitude. I would I was just I, I think I was awful to be around and even worse to play with. Um, I don't like the way I played back then, but I was also a kid, so I yeah. I forgive myself long long ago. Yeah, sure, it's hard. It can be hard. There's a lot of pressure and a lot of emotions running through and. Uh... Obviously, when you have a passion like that, I think everybody's met that kid. It's like it's a good kid, but like competition can bring out a, a different side of people sometimes. But it's something yeah. every kid's got to work through and and but uh, you find know what, a way though? to be more even keeled. But as I'm traveling now, one of the things that's blown me away is there's, I mean, you've seen it. There's so many really good 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kids out there. Yeah. And almost all of them, they, they walk and talk like professionals on the course. It's mind blowing how mature and professional the kids are. And I think it's a testament to the culture of our sport because the people that they're emulating the, the pros on tour for the most part, carry themselves like professionals and they're, they're trying to emulate Paul and Ricky and Eagle and Simon. And, and they, I, I mean, I, I, it's really amazing. Yeah. I, I'll tell you a funny story. I was at in Columbia. I played a, an open tournament earlier this year in Columbia and I was playing with a kid who uh the last round he bogeyed hole three and then birdied the next 15 holes in a row to beat me and then wow. waited for his mom to pick him up to go home wow. and I was like really and like I like I literally part of me just wanted to hate this kid because he was so good and I like I just wanted to be like I I don't like you except he kept calling me Mr. Stokely and he was so polite and so professional like I couldn't help but like him, but I didn't want to. Wow. Like he just beat he just beat me, you know, like this kid. But but they but they all like all the kids are like that. They're all so polite and professional. I don't know. I'm 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 so impressed. Yeah, I mean maybe maybe some of that just owing to the reach that YouTube has for our for our sport where people can kind of get exposure to like, oh, so that's what a pro looks like. That's what a pro acts like. And then that, that's you know, exactly makes, what makes sense that the kids would try to do it. It's exactly, it's a hundred percent what it is. And I think it's, I think it's great. And when, when the professionals don't act like professionals, they don't get praised for it. You know, 
so I, I don't know. I, I think it's definitely like a testament to our, our sport. Yeah. And the kids are just a byproduct of that. Yeah. Cool. Well, so, so, uh, was how, when did you start to realize that you were one of the farthest throwing players? Was it already age 15 at wintertime where you already kind of crushing it past everybody or did that develop a little bit later? Not past everybody, but by 87, um, I, I set the world junior distance record, um, but I was already wanting to set the actual world record. Um, so in 1983, when Frank Aguilera set the world distance record at the Nevada State Championships, I was actually the spotter in the field that ran out and put the flag down where his disc landed. Oh, wow. So I actually marked the first world record thrown with a beveled edge disc. And he went into the Guinness Book World Records, and and that was the moment I said, I got to I want to be in the world record. I want to, like, I want to be in this book. Uh, that's what I wanted. And so I was going after that. And by '87, I thought I had a chance, um, probably not realistically, but I by then I was already one of the top players. Uh, there was a player named Sam Ferens, who you I know you know Sam, yeah, um, who does not get anywhere near enough credit for being as good as he was, but he was the, like, he was the distance king for a part of a decade at least. Um, and he, he was always throwing a little bit farther than me through the eighties, but I was close. Yeah. Wow. How far are we talking? Um, well, when I threw the world junior distance record, it was 155 meters. So like, I think it was 511 feet. Maybe I, I might get, get the math wrong, um, but it was with a P 38 lightning. <laughs> So, to, I mean, that's, you know, a speed six-ish disc that was really understable. Um, so the, that was a, like, that was a really far throw with a P-38 light. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah, uh, that, but that's pretty incredible. That, but that, that's that's kind of how far it was. Like, you know, in the 500s was a smash back then. Yeah, it still kind of is. That's a smash We, we have destroyers, so it's like, I, I, I said the same thing when we had Sam on this very show. That the the numbers and the discs that were producing those numbers just don't even compute for me. It's incredible how far the discs were being thrown back then. It makes me feel like we need to get our world records farther because the technology of the discs seems like it's come so far. But such some just incredible numbers. Uh, the other thing I want to ask you about is uh, the forehand because I feel like you're one of those guys. You know, there's like um, not that many guys older than you that are predominantly or, or really skilled and really powerful forehand players. So where was the, how did you learn that skill when I think you're kind of coming up in a, a backhand dominated sport, right? I mean, there's hardly any forehands being thrown. So, so what was the story there? So I, I always like to correct people because people all the time will post things like I invented the sidearm or something crazy like that, which is nonsense. Yes. Uh, Victor Malafronte, Ken Westerfield. I mean, there were a lot of good sidearms from the seventies, but it, it didn't, it really wasn't part of the game at the highest level throughout the eighties and nineties. I mean, if you go back and watch virtually any disc golf video from the nineties, you'll see one player throwing sidearm. That's me. Yeah, uh, it was uh, referred to as a trick shot by a lot of people. It was that trick shot that I threw. Uh, but I figured out what uh, Joe Racino taught it to me back in the 80s. But I realized by like 1985 that being able to spin the disc both directions was a weapon. 
Um, now it's not even considered a weapon. It's just a, you just have to do it. Um, air quotes around have to. I know that I know what just happened. It's worlds, <laughs> but <laughs> but 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 for the most part, I mean, there, there's outliers, right? But for the yeah. most part, that's just part of the game. Backhand side, we got to spin this both directions. Back then, they they didn't, and I just I never understood why. Like, why are people choosing more difficult Anheuser shots on Heiser holes? It's just what delivery you throw. So I just have always thrown it and never understood why everyone did it. Okay. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, that's kind of the same way I approach it even today, just to try to avoid those tricky turnovers when possible. Yeah, it's not even – I don't view it as – like there's not there's no such thing as a backhand or a sidearm hole. It's I mean it's do you want to spin the disc with clockwise spin or counterclockwise spin, and the hole dictates the throw. I never decide what to throw based on my skill set. The hole and the correct flight path to get there determines if it's a backhand or a sidearm. And I believe you, every player should be fifty fifty. Sure. Like you shouldn't even have a dominant throw. I mean sure. I think most people do. It's, if it's a wide open three hundred seventy foot hole. With no wind, I think most players have one delivery they prefer over the other if, if it's all things being equal. But a, a perfect player doesn't. A perfect player is 50-50. Yeah, so that's I mean, what I always, I always thought it should be. I, I never understood why it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I think that just speaks to – that does require an incredible skill set. I mean, you say, yeah, my skill set doesn't just choose what I throw. But to have the luxury of saying that, your skill set has to be so high already – just to have the command of angles and speeds and spins to make to even be able to make that choice. So I think that's the tough thing. It's just you you have to be incredibly skilled just to just to have all those options on the table. Yeah. Well, when I was I so I I came up with this idea in the '90s because there was not a lot of teaching in the '90s of doing the throwing clinics. That's the one I uh, did in Corvallis, and I went to in the '90s. I went to a total of 220 cities. Uh, back before any other touring pro had gone to one to do these. Yeah. And what I told everybody in every single clinic was the only reason you can get away with not having a sidearm is because no one else has a sidearm. I said, the next generation of players, everybody's going to have both. And if you don't, you're swimming upstream. And like, it was so obvious that that was coming. It just wasn't there then. And uh, that I, I pitched that. By the way, I say the same thing now about, not having thumbers and tomahawks and grenades and everything else. Yeah. When everybody has all the shots, you are at a competitive disadvantage if you have to throw a more difficult shot. And so everybody's going to have to have every shot, basically. So that's I think that's where we're at with the sport right now. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So uh, let's talk about when you kind of started touring and playing outside Southern California and yeah. uh, and moving around the country. And so it was a night. So basically I had decided that I was going to go to college and get a career in a cubicle back in the early nineties, because that's what you were supposed to do according to every single person I knew. And, uh, I was at, I, I, I mean, I remember this, this is the moment that it happened for me. It was in 1992 and I was at, um, Kinko's and I had earned a, uh, a day off. You work every two months, you earn like a, a day, a paid vacation day or something like that. But I had earned a day off and there was a tournament coming up a couple months away. And so I was asking my boss if I could have the Friday before this tournament off. And he starts arguing with me 
about how we um, graveyard, where's he going to find a replacement? And I'm arguing with him. Well, wait a second. I earned this day off. And next thing you know, I'm like, I'm battling with this guy to try to get this day off. And eventually he gave me the day off to, for, to, for a tournament. The whole time I'm thinking, I don't care about Kinko's. I care about my tournament. But I, but I walked away from there thinking, if I stay in school, I'm going to be doing the exact same thing that I just did the rest of my life. I'll be being paid more money, but I'm still going to be – someone else is going to have control over my life. And that's when I was like, I need to go on tour. I need to just do things differently. I can't live like that. And so I came up with the idea of going on tour for three months. But in the back of my mind, at the end of the tour – I still got to go back to college and get a job in a cubicle because that's what life is. Yeah. Um, I went out for three months and at the end of three months, I went, Oh my God, I just played Frisbee for a living for three months. I could never not do this. <laughs> I mean, like what, yeah. once I did it, I was like, I'm screwed. Like I, I, I will never be happy sitting in a cubicle knowing that I could make a living playing Frisbee. I mean, we were eating at gas stations. We were struggling, but it was, the way I wanted to live my life. And I just thought, Oh no. Um, but then I came up with the idea of teaching and clinics and touring and, and like how to turn this into a business, but that's where it started. It started half because I wanted to play Frisbee for a living, but it was the other half of not wanting to live a life that I thought would make me miserable. A lot of it was fear, fear and anxiety based over the alternative to not playing disc golf and doing what I wanted to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so how old were you at that point? Like 22. Okay. Yeah. And you were just, you just had a, had a reasonably reliable car and able to get out there and kind of, I mean, I think you were playing very well. You're like in the hunt for wins, but I know that wins didn't pay like they do today. <laughs> back then. No, no, there was no prize money. I, um, my biggest year on tour, I won like $12,000 and, my expenses that year were twelve thousand and one dollars. <laughs> like maybe not that. I might maybe my expenses were seven thousand, but there was sure. no money. Sure. There's no money in playing. Um well I should say no money. That's not true. I mean, if I'm putting gas in my tank and feeding myself, that's that's yeah. a that's um it's a hand to mouth job, but there was, you know, bare minimums. Um, but I realized that I could number one stay at people's houses. Yep. And that I could live very modestly because the alternative was, you know, the job thing. And so I barely made it. But then I've also realized that I didn't want to be dependent on prize money. That was too stressful. So the first thing I did, which nobody had done before was started um, making, um, well, some people had made custom discs to tour, but I had made a lot of custom discs, shirts, hats, umbrellas, minis, every type of merchandise that I could find. And I would set up a tournament central and, you know, I wasn't selling them out of the trunk of my car. I was actually set up, like, with a stand, with a tent and everything. And I, I started making, like, five or $600 per tournament, which isn't a ton of money. But that's enough money where we're yeah. not struggling. We, we can go out to dinner afterwards, right? Yeah, sure. Um, that was a lot of money back then. and But it was also required work. Yep. It, 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 I, I had to treat it more like a job than just playing Frisbee golf. Um, and then from there, I came up with the idea of running double series and clinics. And then I came up with all these different business ideas. And next thing I know, I'm actually doing pretty well. But it was never from prize money. Yeah, yeah, I think that and that's how it probably had to be. I mean, I think you, you deserve a lot of credit for kind of uh, 
building that that model um, as a disc golfer to kind of monetize your skills and your your what measure of celebrity you might have from your skills as you're traveling all around to you know to be able to reach out and and do the clinics and I feel like I mean is there anybody that's even close as far as how many clinics you've taught in your life um that I don't know I did my 500th in Nashville earlier this year but I also took 13 years off um, sure. I'd be willing to bet that I did more clinics, but I don't think I taught as many people total because in the 90s, I did a lot of clinics for 20 and 23 people. Sure. And by the way, that was the entire club. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Some, sometimes that was the entire state came out for those 24 people. Yeah. Um, but people like Jay and Des Redding have done a ton of these and, you know, they had 50 to 70 people, you know, so numbers wise, they might have passed me. Sure. Um, but. No, it was neat. I wrote about this in my book, but in 1990, it was either 1997 or 1998, I made over $100,000 uh, doing disc golf and I bought a condo and I was the first disc golfer in the world to actually buy a home. Wow. Um, just from disc, and again, not prize money, but but doing disc golf. And um, like that was the moment when I went, oh my God, I think I just made it. Like, yeah. I think I'm, act I'm actually like upper middle class. Like I'm, I'm not poor. Yeah. And Which it was, um, it was, um, considering it was where, the, where the sport was at the time and, and where it had come from in, in all within your career. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen all of it, yeah. <laughs> seen the whole, the whole thing, you know? And, and the thing is, I, and I talk to younger players about this all the time is that you have to treat this as a business and you got to treat yourself as a brand. Um, if you're one of the lucky people that is so good that people show up and just start writing you checks, then, you know, hats off to you. But the vast majority of people that are going to make it are like, they're doing it with, by, with work. Sure. I mean, look, I mean, look at Simon. I mean, Simon's one of the, the best players who's ever lived, but he's not competing at Paul's level most weekends, but Simon found a niche for himself in social media and has built a very successful business for himself as a very good player, but he has marketed himself better than anybody just about the sport. And so I think a lot of players can do that. I mean, if, if you're a 10, 20 player, I mean, that is so high level, but it's also fairly like it's, you're almost invisible unless you do something more than shoot 10, 20 golf. You got to do something more. Yeah, you're so close yet so far from the, yeah, that Yeah, well, look, look at you. I mean, you went out. I mean, look at like, – you're one of the, the pioneers as well, Nate. I mean, when you went out and ran events and traveled to countries and did clinics and connected yourself to the right people that you were traveling with and the right company, and you built a successful business around the Nate Sexton brand, that doesn't mean you're not a high-level player. You are. But there yeah. are a, there's a lot of players in that group of high level players that you are doing better than because you've treated this whole thing like a business, which is smart. I yeah. admire that. Yeah, totally. I, I yeah, in part due to perhaps seeing you do it uh, so many years ago. You know, it's just kind of that one of those things was like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Like you're traveling anyway. You got downtime. Um, you know, gotta gotta capitalize. If I, I always I always treat it like if I'm going to be away from my wife. I better be working. I'm not just going to, you know, sit around every day. And that's kind of what pushed me into commentary as well, like with Jomez and Central Coast and everything else. Because it was like, hey, let, how, what's another way I can be valuable in this sport? What's another way I can contribute and make some money 
at the same time to keep, just keep me busy and keep making a work trip, you know, when I'm going to be gone and not that it's not fun. I get to hang out with great people. I get to play amazing courses. I get to compete at the top of the game, which is a thrill. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I always thought of it as a, try to make it like a job, try to find work wherever I could and, uh, and, and make my time, uh, efficient, you know, spend, spend my time, uh, bettering my brand, bettering my game, bettering, you know, hopefully the whole game, if I can do it right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the core of it, you know, the core of your success in part is your success on the golf course. So even practicing is part of your career and your job and your brand. You know, you're yeah. not goofing off. You're, I mean, it's fun to go out and play around to golf with your friends. It's not as much fun to putt for two hours a day. Sure. That, but those, but that is what a professional does. A professional doesn't play leagues very often. A professional is working, sure. Sure. which happens to be putting. It just doesn't seem like work because everybody wants to be playing frisbee golf, but sure. it's work. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about distance world records, man. I mean, that must have been crazy. What's the story there? Ninety-five, I believe, was that first one when you when you got your name in the book. Like, you, like was your goal when you were a kid, right? Yeah, that was. You know, they. I had I had three main goals as a competitor. One was to be a, a world distance champion, which I did in nineteen ninety-one. Um, the second goal was to be the PDGA world champion, which I never accomplished. I second place twice, yeah, uh, but the third close. goal. Yeah, very close. Um, well, it's hard. To, you know, it's hard when you talk about Ken because it's like very close. It seems so far away. <laughs> yeah, I think I was looking at it. I think you you were one time you were four and maybe one time you were eight back, but four shots. I mean, over seven rounds, eight rounds. Yeah, you were right no, there. It, it is again. It's, it seems it's so close, and but I'm not sure how close it really was. It's it's really hard to say. But um, but you know. In hindsight, I'm proud of it. I mean, at the time, I cried a lot. I mean, I yeah. shed a lot of tears over those losses, but now yeah. I'm proud of it. But the, the other one was the, the world distance record. And um, I set the record in 1995. It was at the Grateful Disc Championships. Uh, there's very strict rules when it comes to those records. You can't just go out and throw and measure it. Um, it has to be in competition. It had to be an event that had been published in advance a certain amount of time. Uh, the theory being is that everybody in the world had the opportunity to show up there that day. So had it been a, like, say a windy day, you had the chance to be there, right? You can't just say, Oh, it's a windy day tomorrow. We're doing a tournament. Um, so there were some strict whiff diff guidelines, uh, but we went out to the event and it was, it was a hundred percent still air. It was dead calm. And I was completely bummed because it's impossible to set a world record without a tailwind. I thought, and I ended up throwing 656 feet with an X-clone in dead calm. And that was the world record. Wow. And the funny part of that story was that the, uh, there, the world record had been 193 point something, 195 point something, then 197 point something meters. And the 200 meter mark was kind of our four minute mile among, among distance competitors, which virtually none, none of them or very few of them were golfers. These are distance throwers. Yeah. specialists and the 200 meter mark was the milestone who's going to be the first to break the 200 meter mark and we were out there uh and the person daryl nodlin uh if you've heard of him i think yeah um yeah he was he was actually brought out surveyor's equipment and uh surveyed it and it came out at 656.2 inches and we're like i think that's really close to 200 meters but his equipment wasn't inch you know feet and inches 
And because it was 1995, it's not like we had calculators or cell phones. So we drove to the right life because that was the nearest place we knew that had a calculator. We we, we put it in, we punch it in, we do the math, and it's 200.01 meters. So it it was one centimeter over. Now, the thing is, when you're marking those shots, the disc lands, you put a flag in the ground, which means there's a margin for error of far more than a centimeter uh, for and against. So, like, technically, it was 200.01 meters, but as soon as that happened, like, my literally my heart fell on my stomach, and I'm like, wait a second, no. I go, I can't set the record by a centimeter. That's because it's inaccurate. I go, what if, like, I just, I was sad over it. And everybody said, that's not the way it works. You put the flag down, you measure it, whatever it comes out, you take it. And yeah. I was like, and I'm like, and, and they're right. But at the time I was, I was heartbroken because I just, that's not how I wanted to break it. Um, but it technically was 200 meters. Fortunately, I rebroke my record at 211.32 meters a couple years later and no one had hit 200 yet. So then it kind of became a moot point. Yeah. Um, but that was it. And that was with a, a Discraft XL. Yeah. yeah. That is just, I used to throw those. That's just crazy. I mean, what again, speed six, speed seven, somewhere in there. It's not a, not a quick yeah. disc. No, it's not. And that had about a 10 mile an hour steady tailwind. So, I mean, it had a decent, a decent breeze. It wasn't heavy, but it was not still. Yeah. But every record, like you said, all the records we've got have been set largely with some wind. So, you yeah. know, almost oh, doesn't sure. matter. So it's like whatever wind, it's just still about knowing the angles and having the arm speed and having the height to get that kind of distance is incredible. Where, where, where was that one thrown? Um, that was in Kingston, New Mexico. Um, it was at a, a tournament that was a distance tournament. It was actually cool. specifically to, to go through a distance. Um, then the, the funny thing was, is um, in 2000, I, I believe it was either 2000 or 2001, um, by then, I was starting to have some back problems, and I wasn't throwing as far as I was in 98. I still threw pretty far, but not as far. And I went out there, and Chris Falkt, uh, spelled V-O-I-G-T, so it's spelled Voigt, but Chris Falkt, uh, was my biggest competitor in distance. I mean, we, we were neck and neck. Like, I, I would edge him out, but we were peers. And I was out there measuring his throw, and I was standing right about at the 211-meter mark, and he threw... Um, and about halfway to me, I realized it was going over my head wow. and I was like, I'm like, Oh, <laughs> and like, I literally felt like my identity being ripped from my body, but he's also one of my best friends in the world. And and I felt like he deserved it because it was like, I had my time. I'm, I was happy that he had his time. Um, I had five throws left in the competition, but I wasn't going to throw that far. I, I, I wasn't throwing as far as him at that point. So yeah. I wasn't going to beat him. Um, I had never attempted the sidearm record before. I always knew I could break it if I wanted it, but that's, I didn't really care about it. I cared about the record. Yeah. And the, so since I said, uh, I'm not going to be able to reach his throw, I said, well, I have five throws left. I'll go ahead and set the sidearm record, um, which I threw 568 wow. uh, with, with a Discraft X2. Wow. <laughs> I know, that's, which is, that's really far for an X2. Yeah, and uh, um, so I, I set the record almost like out of spite because the sidearm doesn't isn't as affected by back uh, back issues. Okay, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. It's, it's a lot more of an arm throw. 
Um, yeah. I did a 360 on the sidearm too, which is funny because I, I, 13 years later, still nobody's doing that. But I, I, when I throw distance with a sidearm, I do a 360 also. Yeah, I, I have a, my, my buddy uh, Dion Arlen, who did a lot of distance stuff, he experimented a little with the 360 forehand, I know. I mean, it, it makes sense. Yeah, why, it wouldn't it, why wouldn't it speed you up a little? Yeah, no, it, it works. It's just it's a, you know, you got to practice it to get the hang of it, but get the timing down. Um, but yeah, so I, I set the record. And now the funny thing is, is then I took off for 13 years. And when I came back, everybody's like, oh, you're the guy with the sidearm record. I'm like, well, no, I used to have it. They're like, no, you still do. I'm like, like what are you talking about? Nukes were out by this point. Like you're telling me that that's, that that record is still there 13 years later. Wow. Um, but it, yeah. And then I think it got broken in 14 or 15, which it was going to because um, I threw a baseball in like the mid to high 80s, which meant yeah. that there's lots of people with more arm speed than me um, out there. I mean, I couldn't throw a baseball 95 miles an hour if I wanted to. So clearly, I there's people that would throw sidearm farther than me at some point. So eventually it was going to get broken. Maybe not lots of people with more arm speed, but okay. certainly some. Uh, certainly some. Before we get to uh, your time away from the sport, the, the last two things I want to hear about, uh, one of them is all these national doubles titles that you won. That tournament sounds amazing. I want to hear about it. I want to know why we don't get still get to play that because there was like a big professional doubles event, right? Yeah. So doubles used to be way more important than it is now. Uh, I think because it was a lot more common at recreational uh, events, but the national pairs championships in, in uh, round rock, which is Austin, Texas, uh, everybody was there. Like it was a who's who of national players. It was something we took very serious. And I, I won it one year with Steve Valencia. I won it with Mike Randolph. I won it with Brad Hammock. I won it with Ron Russell. Um, I run, I won mixed pairs with Juliana, uh, Juliana Corver a couple times. Um, and then world doubles used to be taken um, more serious too. I mean, it was, that was part of the tournament. Clearly it wasn't the most important part of the, of the world championships, but it, it was something that people made a point of, of caring about. Yeah. Um, and I won a whole bunch of world and national titles in, in, uh, in that. And I think part of the reason why, I think there's two reasons. One was because I did not have as well-rounded a skill set as some players, even though I threw backhand and sidearm, I didn't have the strongest finesse game. Uh, and I, when I could play doubles, I could get a finesse player on my team and then we could be a, like a really strong team because yeah. they could make up for what I was lacking in. Uh, but I also, I, I make players that I play with better because I don't get frustrated or angry or stressed out ever. Like I basically just keep them laughing the whole time and then they play their best game. Yeah. And it's not so bad having the, one, the longest throw in the world on your team either. That gives you some, some nice little confidence. Well, so, okay. National only because national doubles was at the longest course in the world. It was the only course in the world just about that wasn't a par 54 Wow. Like, you know, 5,800 foot course, which would then play to my skill set. Round Rock, Texas was a 9,000 foot course. Perfect. And so I actually got to throw hard on half the holes, which was like that never happened. Like <laughs> at tour events, like I, there was very little advantage to throwing far at most tournaments. Yeah, sure. All right, cool. Well, I, I hope we get to do that again. I feel like the fans and the players would really enjoy high level doubles. 
and uh, I hope that that comes back. That sounds really great. Uh, the last thing before we kind of get to the, the the break from the game you were talking about, we got to hear about the 97 and 98 World Championships, what you can remember from those battles with Climo, from coming up. I mean, I know you said you took it pretty hard at the time. Anyone would. But, yeah, just uh, whatever you can remember, a story or two about those events and, and you know, being close enough to kind of taste the world title. Yeah, I, I got plenty of stories. I won't bore you with all of them. But I, I, a couple that stand out was in 1997 in, in Charlotte, I was actually leading after four rounds because the tournaments back then, was it was nine and a half rounds. Wow. Uh, the One of the challenges with the nine and a half round tournament, there's something called regression to the meet. Sure. And what it means is that the larger the, the, the sample size, the, the larger the, the data set, the closer you're going to get to average, which yeah. means it's far more likely the number one player in the world wins at a nine-round tournament than a four-round tournament. I mean, a one-round tournament, anybody can win. Yep. Four-round tournament, not many people can win. Nine-round tournament, hard to beat the best player in the world yeah um the thing that i did and and i to this day i regret this but after four rounds i was in first place and i went up and took a picture of the leaderboard Uh, which yeah you can like you know why that is an absolutely awful mindset i was happy to be leading after four rounds instead i should have been I shouldn't have been happy or unhappy. I should have been focused on the next round. Plenty of time to be happy if I'm leading after nine and a half. But I was. Yes. Um, it was just the wrong mindset to be in. It was kind of almost like when someone shoots with me and they ask for my autograph before the round, and, and I think I, I will beat you for sure. Like you're not entering the, with the right mindset. You should be hungry to beat me, not asking for my autograph. Well, I was kind of too happy. <laughs> I was too happy halfway in the tournament. Just it was. Yeah. Um, that was my biggest mistake. I ended up playing a very poor nine holes, and that pretty much knocked me out of the tournament. Um, the, the the funny thing about 1998 was I looked back at that tournament afterwards, and this was really like was, this is very satisfying. Is that I played my best game? Yeah, like I, I actually played nine and a half rounds and felt like I didn't leave that many strokes out there. I, I remember. Um, to this day, for the tournament, I had three bogeys and one double bogey in nine and a half rounds. Um, if you've ever played Mount Airy, uh, which is a really, really hard course. In fact, one of the pools at that tournament did not have a single player under par at that tournament uh, for wow. two rounds there. And I played two rounds of Mount Airy bogey free. So I like I played my best game and got beat by someone better. Yeah. And I, I remember thinking that, like, if I don't win, uh, I mean, not that day. That day I was too busy crying. But, in, like, not long after I thought, if I never win a world championships, at least I can feel like I played my best game. There's no second guessing it. I wasn't good enough. That's easier to live with than I didn't give it my best game. Yeah. yeah. So that was probably that. And, now, and I'm satisfied with that. Yeah. I've definitely had that experience. Not Not at the Worlds. But uh, but an event that comes to mind, there was a memorial for me once that I I had only one bogey and I shot 44 under for the four rounds and I lost by one. And that's Paul Macbeth for you, you know. So it's just like, I mean, what do you want? I'm averaging 11 under. I'm playing. I'm not making bogeys. And I didn't take it too hard. It was kind of like, well, you know, that's too bad. But what I mean, I can't even hardly look back with any regret because if you're playing well, you're playing well. 
Yeah, I, so I got this from Charles Barkley. This is how I've had to live with, you know, losing to Ken, you know, virtually every time I played him. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, Charles Barkley's daughter asked him, how can we never beat Michael Jordan? And Charles Barkley just said to his daughter, because he's better than me. Yeah. And that was it. There was no more explanation than that. And I'm, and I'm like, wow, that's actually like, that's so deep while being so simple. And I just thought that's what I've had to come to grips with. Ken was better than me. He was better than all of us. Sure. So he was better than me too. Uh, sure. <laughs> that's You don't want to be thinking it at the time, but in, but it's nice to be able to look back and go, you know what? Yeah. Hats off. I mean, how can you not with a guy like Climo? But yeah, but yeah, sure. That's good. That's probably probably a healthy place to be with it, I think. It is. But yeah, so uh incredible career obviously to that point. You've been you had a lot of wins, one of the best players in the world. Uh I know you started having the back injuries and and then that that kind of forced your hand a little bit, right? To kind of move away from the sport? No, I I I so I was very frustrated because I was having problems with injuries. Um but I quit cuz my daughter was born. Okay. You know, yeah. the, there was a correlation to yeah. injuries and burnout, sure. but I wasn't going to be on the road. I wanted to be home to raise my daughter and I didn't sure. want to have a job. I wanted to, I didn't want her in, even in daycare. I wanted to be able to be, I wanted to raise my kid. And were you in, uh, were you in Colorado at that point? Yeah, or, or? I, I was in Fort Collins. Okay, cool. So then now you when have, I, uh, oh, but what's the you, thing, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, please go ahead. Uh, but the thing is, is that when I decided to quit, I knew that when I quit, I was going to be done because, well, I was, you know, having problems with injuries, which was making it harder to practice. Then I was going to be raising my kid. Then I wasn't going to be on tour. If I wasn't showing up competing to win tournaments, I didn't want to go. Yeah. Um, now, I don't need to win a tournament to be happy. I don't, I honestly, God's honest truth, I don't care if I win or lose, but I have to be playing for the win. Or else, why am I playing the tournament? I, I don't sure. play tournaments for fun. I play tournaments to win. And when I realized that I would be going to tournaments just to compete, I was not going to play at all. And so I just I got rid of all my discs and I just got everything. Um, I didn't even pay attention to the sport because whenever I would occasionally go online, they had this brand new thing out called the internet. <laughs> and, <laughs> And you could check it. And if I looked at a tournament, I saw the people there. I mean, I would like start to cry and I would like have to turn it off. So I, it hurt too much to be even passively following the sport. I had to just leave it behind me, which I did. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you really did. I mean, you barely, I think I saw you had a one tournament in 2004, um, just all by itself. But then it was a lot of years without uh, any PDGA action. Yeah. My, my friend entered me in the tournament. And I told him I wasn't going to enter. It was the Colorado State Championship. Randy Law mentored me. And he says, I said, I, I, I go, I don't play tournaments. And he goes, yeah, we're going to play. We're going to dress up as characters from Sean the Sheep. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I, I, I can wrap my head around that. Nice. So, yeah, we showed up. And by the way, I was on the lead. <laughs> and then I was on the lead card in the open division until the last round. And so, like, like I even didn't play that bad. I think I, think I finished sixth or something. But yeah. It was nice. actually pretty funny. Nice. So then, yeah, obviously, family time. You're you're there. You're you're living that life, and you know, I I got a taste of that um, with my daughter now. 
And then eventually, you know, you got the itch to come back, right? In 2015, is that about right? When you kind of started to to come back and try to compete again? Yeah. Well, do you know the story behind that? No, I want to. I want everyone wants to know. Okay, I will. T- I will tell you this. This this is my favorite story in all of in all of disc golf, and partially because it's my story, but I also think I, I think this may be the best story in the sport objectively, um, because it disc golf saved my life. So well, let's hear it. Yeah, I, I think I, I've heard a little I, bit of this, but I need to hear it again. Yeah. So I dabbled in drugs as a teenager, but by the time I was actually out competing and playing, I was a very serious player, diet, exercise. I mean, I. Um, like I, I was taking it serious. And so the drugs were not a part of my life. Um, after um, running my own businesses for 10-ish years, very successfully, um, the internet bubble burst. And next thing you know, my business started failing. And I, I uh, next thing you know, I'm going into, I went from making a lot of money to going into debt. And now then I'm losing my house. And then like I'm struggling and businesses are failing. And I came up with this idea that, that, that amphetamines would help because then I wouldn't have to sleep and I could work more. Oh um, boy. Yeah. Turns, yeah, no, it turns out, I, you might not know this, but it turns out that amphetamines lead to poor life decisions. Like, did you know that? I've, I, I have heard that through the grapevine. I have no yeah, yeah, experience, so, but I so have I heard that. I didn't, <laughs> this wasn't listed on the warning label on the, the bag yet bought from the guy in the alley, but um, no, I started off with prescription. I was, I was getting prescription amphetamines as a way to, to work more. So I, I had these very noble motives when I started, I was trying to save my house. And, and I thought if I slept less, I could work more. The problem with drugs, uh, is that you, you can very quickly go from these very noble motives to just being someone that needs drugs because you're a drug addict. Yeah. And, and that's what happened. And, and I aspired, it was not for a very long period in my life. It was a pretty short period but it spiraled very quickly and then it accelerated the losing the house, losing the marriage, losing the whole thing. Like, and so next thing you know, I'm like in a really very bad position in life, sleeping in, you know, like I would be, I would stay, I, I used to say homeless, but I mean, I'd be at like hotels and stuff like that, but it was the life of somebody who's, you know, day to day. Yeah. On the um, edge kind of very, very much on the edge, very much living a life that I'm not, that I'm, you know, incredibly not proud of. Um, and, and by the way, every word of this is God's honest truth. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating one bit of the story. Um, so I was at a point where I was, in my opinion, my humble opinion, I believe that was the biggest piece of shit loser on the planet. I just lost my wife to another man. I lost my home. I can like, like I was, I was the biggest loser ever i believed and I, and maybe i was at that time right but i certainly believed it and i connected with um gateway because i was trying to figure out how to make a little bit of money and i was going to go into a disc store to maybe try to get gateway in the store or something um but i i you got a picture of the scene i'm standing outside the front door of fly green pro shop in denver the biggest loser who ever lived no one loves me no one wants like i hate myself I opened the front door and as I opened the front door, there's a poster of me on the wall of the pro shop with my autograph on it. Wow. And I walk in the door and the guy behind the counter goes, wait, you're Scott Stokely. You're Scott Stokely. And he runs to the back and I hear him in the back of the store yelling to the guy, Scott Stokely's in the store. 
two of the customers in the store recognized me. And like all of a sudden I went from being the biggest loser ever within 30 seconds, I'm signing autographs and I'm, I'm literally signing autographs thinking to myself, don't you guys know I'm a loser? Wait, wait, <laughs> didn't you guys get the memo that, that, you know, I'm not worthy of signing an autograph, but it was what, the what first year? time. What year this is this? This is in uh, 2013. Okay. 13 is either 13 or 14. It was right around that time. Okay. And, and it was like the first time in at least in several years that I felt proud of myself. I felt good about myself. And so I, um, I, like it was a whirlwind. Uh, one of the players even told the story right in front of me that, uh, that I told in my book, he's like telling his buddy, Oh my God, whole three grateful dish championships. He's trailing my grand off by one stroke. He steps up to the building, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and you know, and one of the people's like, yeah, man, you're my hero. Wow. And so I, I was like, I, I walked out the door, the door of the store. And I thought, I thought, Oh my God, I, I like, I'm, I'm not a loser. I, I'm Scott Stokely. I, I like, I, I am somebody. And then like five minutes later, I thought I, 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 I'm a loser. I need drugs. Like, unfortunately it doesn't like work yeah, that. Not, that like, well, not right? just flipping a switch, unfortunately. No, but, but what, what flipped was I got to feel good about myself again and knew what it felt like. And then I thought to myself, I, I need to get off the drugs and I go, I need to go out and on tour. Like I need to go out and I need to go, go after that feeling again of people looking up to me being the center of attention, whatever it is. Like I, I needed to be Scott Stokely again. Yeah. And, and so I didn't know how I was going to quit the drugs because like, that's <laughs> like, I, I did not think I could just quit by choice. Like um, easy to tell someone else to do it. But at that moment, I didn't feel like I could. However, I had three traffic warrants in three different counties and the way the system works is if you go to one county oh, on a traffic warrant, you go to court a week later, they take you to the next court. The, the system drags, drags its feet. And uh, I remember. And so I thought to myself, well, I know I could quit drugs. I could go to jail. And so I went down to the courthouse and I did as much drugs as I could fit into my brain at that moment. Right outside the courthouse, I threw away what I had left. I walked into court as high as I've ever been in my life. And I said, I have warrants, take me to jail. And that was what I did to get off the drugs because I knew it's going to be kicking drugs in jail is not something that anybody should ever go through. Wow. And I knew it was going to be horrible, but I also knew that then I couldn't change my mind the next day. And then after I ended up spending like three weeks in jail and I, you know, after about a week of sleeping and they, I got, you know, eating every day, I started to feel better by the time I got out, I really wanted to do drugs, but I was no longer physically dependent on them. So I had a head start. Um, Fly Green put me to work. I went in and got a place to live for a couple months. And so I decided, I'm like, I need to go out on tour. Like right now I'm, I'm hanging by a thread because every single day I still want to get high. And I said, I need to get out on the road. And I said, what am I going to do? And then, so I called up Barry Schultz. And Barry was in North Carolina uh, and he was staying at a house on, on the country course. Right. But I didn't know it at the time. I just called up Barry and I said, Barry, I, I don't know what else to do. I'm just reaching out to you for help. And he said, um, he goes, Oh, well, I, I live, I live on a disc golf course with Brian McCree. He goes, hold on a second. Hey, Brian Stokely's going to come live with us. And Brian's like, Oh, that's awesome. And Barry goes, yeah, come, come on. You can live with us. And I said, Barry, I, 
like, I, I don't have any money. He goes, I, I, I wasn't asking you for any money. And I said, well, how, how long can I stay? And his exact words were, as long as you need to. Wow. And then, and I played that course with you right around, it must've been right around that time. Yes, it is. That's, that is, that is exactly when you saw me. Wow. Um, so that was, it was all, that was all tied to that same time period. Um, so I went out there and then, so I'm like, well, now I don't have any money. So fly green gives me, loads me up with a golf bag full of golf discs and bus fare. They put me on a bus out to, to North Carolina. Um, I, uh, I contact Chuck Connolly, you know, you know, Spike Heiser, of course I, I contact yeah. Chuck. You don't know this at the time because I was playing some tournaments with you out there, but I contacted Chuck and I, I told Chuck my situation and Chuck says, well, what if I enter you in every tournament I run in North Carolina for the foreseeable future and you can just keep whatever prize money you win? You don't even wow. know me. And I, and I went, and he actually says to me, he goes, do you think, w- would that help help you out, Scott? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, Chuck, that, that would help me out. Chuck's the man. And it is. And so that was like basically, you know, last place cash was like 35 bucks, but that's ramen noodles for a week. And uh, that's how I got my career off the ground. That's how it all started because – because uh, I reached back out to the sport and everybody, it's like family, wow. you know, Barry, Chuck, um, Brian Schweberger, um, he even Brian Schwebe helped me out some out there, Fly Green, like basically all the people, um, Discraft, Discraft stepped up and did some things to help me out, Dave McCormick at Gateway, but basically all my, all my people were right there for me when I needed them. And then, you know, I put, put things back together again. Wow. Yeah. And that that was like right when I had first moved to North Carolina and I was kind of, I remember like going out, to, I, that was the only time I ever went to the country course. I remember going there and playing around with you, man. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that who, was, who won? Oh, I don't even know. Well, if you, if you don't remember, we'll just say me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You can have it. <laughs> okay. No, I don't think we were even keeping score, but yeah, it was on new year's day. Okay. Wow. Man, that's. I mean, I think I'm glad that that some more people can hear that story. I know it's in your book, and and that a lot of people probably already know it, but that's um, incredible. Well, actually, it's, it's it's actually not in my book because my book ends in 2001 when I quit disc golf, and oh, my I just fin- no, no, I just finished the first draft of the second book of my trilogy, which is 2001 to 2013. It's it's my time away from disc golf. Okay. Um. And then my third book is that I haven't written yet is going to be my time back in the sport. But that yeah, you're does, still live no, in that one. There's no ending to that one yet. But the yeah, second book is, it's, it. yeah. Um, so that will be part of my second book, though, because coming back to disc golf is part of the second story because that's the end of the, the that's the redemption part of my life. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, I know now you're you're out traveling full time, no home base. Uh, I know you're doing all kinds of clinics. I know that you just announced you were donating all your prize money, right? To charity. Yeah. So I, I, I'm something I'm really excited about. So I've, um, I've run over the the last four years, um, 281 events for kids and adults with special needs. Um, the, every one of those events was free for the the kids and their families. Um, I would give them discs and shirts. I paid for all those. Um, they weren't fundraisers. I, people said it's a fundraise. Like I didn't run fundraising events. I ran doubles afterwards to make enough money to get me to the blue power events. Um, but the money I earned went to, you know, 
sustaining to sustaining being alive and doing it. Yeah. Um, the reason why uh, I was doing this was because, uh, in large part, because of the story I just told, which was finding value in my life. I mean, I found a lot of value in, wow, you're my hero. You throw really far. You're my hero. You played with Climo, right? Um, but I, I found more validation and more pride and, you know, the more of those good feelings that are better than drugs <laughs> off helping people in the special needs community. So that became a passion of mine. So I couldn't run any events where I taught uh, people with special needs during COVID. So back in April, I decided that every tournament I play, I, I asked the tournament director to donate my prize money directly to a, a, an autism or special needs organization locally. I just give them the name of an organization. So every tournament, um, I've already committed every tournament for the rest of this year and every tournament for all of next year, um, 100% of my prize money is being donated directly to an organization. Um, but I do that in part because I can't do the classes, but I still want to do something. I, that, it's something that's in, it's something I need to do for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, man, it's that's that's pretty amazing. I think uh, doing a lot of good, and uh, and that's so cool that you kind of took took that lesson from a bumpy patch in your life, and uh, using that to kind of hopefully help some other people, you know, with obviously different challenges but hopefully to help them kind of get through some, some things and, and find that same joy, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I tell everyone though, I mean, I do this for very selfish reasons. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel proud of myself. I lay my head down on the pillow every night and I, I can almost always think of something really good I did today. And that is something that is like, that's priceless to me. So I, I will, I will always do that. And a lot of this comes from being on the downside, you know, eight years ago, because before I had my problems eight years ago, like I wasn't a bad person. I was a good person. I cared about my friends and my family and Frisbee players, but I didn't really think about much more outside of my personal bubble. Like the way I described it is I never once, you know, kicked a homeless person but I also didn't notice when they were there either. Like I just existed in my world where I was a nice guy to the people around me. Yeah. And I didn't really have empathy the way I do now for other people because I'd never really been in that type of situation. Um, I thought that everybody's situation, not everybody, like certainly not the special needs community, but I thought most people's situations were all because they chose to be that way. And I, I, I just was ignorant. And once I found myself there and I realized, oh shit, I could wind up in this position. It just made me see the world differently. And so now I can't see the world around me the way I did before. Yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, illustrated very obviously by a really unfortunate thing. And I, I don't know. I hope there's some good news related to this, but I actually don't even know. I know that you were the victim of like a major theft where you had your whole trailer with all your belongings stolen kind of recently. Right. And I saw that your reaction to that was just kind of like. You know, I know this guy's probably struggling. I'd love to get my stuff back, but like, you know, it's yeah. like you, you're definitely talking the talk and walking the walk when it comes to yeah. that. Because even yeah. among, with that against that hardship, you're still donating all your prize money and you're still, uh, you know, thinking about the guy who was desperate enough to steal all your stuff. Well, first off, it's 2021. It could have been a girl. Yeah. Hey, don't be so sexist, Nate. Fair Nate. enough. It could, Fair enough. Women steal trailers also. Fair enough. Um, 
no, I, <laughs> no, I, it, it, so the funny thing about that is like, I mean, we, my girlfriend and I, we, we honest to God, we weren't mad. You know, like I'm traveling around the world playing Frisbee. I'm making great money from my seminars. Like I got the best life in the world. I mean, like cry me a river. Like I'm going to cry about something bad that happened to me when I'm living a life that everybody would trade places with me. Like, no, that's, that's, that's BS. Like I have a good life. And that person that, that did this doesn't have a good life. And I really believe this, that there's a small chance that this is a terrible human being that deserves no empathy. Like, like it, there's a chance this is just a rotten person, but it's probably not the case. So it's more yeah. likely that they're sick, whether it be mental illness, um, substance abuse is obviously likely, but substance abuse comes with things. There's reasons why this happens. And so um, I people have misunderstood my empathy because it's not like, I don't believe there should be consequences. I don't believe that it's okay. Like, no, I mean, if, if someone gets, you know, if, if the person gets caught, they, they face consequences. You, you have to, that's, that's yeah. important for them too, but it doesn't come with me feeling vengeance towards them. It comes with me feeling compassion. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, the thing I take away from talking to you is just kind of a good reminder that, Obviously, people are complicated. Obviously, desperate people don't really have choices. And uh, and yeah, the the empathy thing is uh, it rings true coming from you. I feel like because you you've seen a, a lower point in your life than I have in mine, and I'm thankful for that selfishly for myself that I haven't seen that. But just to hear your story and to hear your reaction now, looking back, I mean, it, it just reminds me that yeah, people are. People are multifaceted and even, you know, it's it, like you said, it's very rare to find a person that's just truly a bad person. There's, there's just so much more at play. There, there, there is. And when, and when I look back at me, especially is it, when, when I was in my situation eight years ago is that I'm, I'm hyper intelligent. I'm extremely motivated. I don't suffer from mental illness. I have an incredible safety net of good people around me. So I literally have all the advantages. I'm a white male who's tall and handsome, whatever you want. Like, like I, like I have all the quote unquote advantages in the world. And I wound up in that situation. Really yeah, hard to yeah. judge somebody that doesn't have half the advantages I have who wind up there. Like, like, like I never thought that could happen to me. Like, my God, like I, I got everything. I'm Scott Stokely. I'm like this great, smart, hardworking guy. Like I'm, and then, then somehow, and by the way, I, I trace, I won't go into the details. I can trace the path that I wound up there and it did come with a single decision to wind up there. It came with a bunch of reasonable decisions at the time that in hindsight were bad decisions. Yeah. So I see the path that I got there and I went, wow, even I was vulnerable to this. How about someone that isn't as smart as me or, or doesn't have a, a good family? Like, yeah, I, it can happen to anybody. It really can. Wow. Well, what well, started as a disc golf show, we, we go anywhere with this show. I mean, I'm I'm glad to hear that from you and hear hear that story. Uh, and I really want to thank you for coming on the show. I hope that maybe you would entertain uh, some fan questions uh, from our listeners. I'm all game. Let's let's hit them up. I bet they're about disc golf stuff. Probably. Some of them are. <laughs> we get we got a little bit of everything for you though. You are Scott Stokely, so you can imagine. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, you know, Nate brought that up and one of our fan questions, um, did come in on, 
uh, Instagram uh, from a Clay Call and asked if you ever got your trailer back or ever retrieved any of those lost items. And it sounds like maybe you didn't. No, I never got them back. But I will tell you a funny story about the trailer being stolen. <laughs> so I, I'm laughing at like, well, first off, the sport's blowing up. But my name and my brand have blown up. Like, it's so big, right? So when the cop comes to take the report uh, for my trailer, he sits down, he does the full report, gets our name, does all the stuff he does. The last thing he says to me before he leaves is, hey, can I get a selfie with you? So I have a picture. I have a picture of the cop taking a selfie with me. And I was like, I was like, that was almost worth losing the trailer over because I'm like, wow, I'm like a real celebrity now. The, The cop wants a selfie with me. (laughs) wow all right scott this is uh one that that i'm excited to hear about um nate you know this one's coming from Jarrett from buffalo and uh there's been a a lot of discussion as of late on social media uh for some reason the goat discussion keeps coming up now scott you were able to play through a few different generations of players and still being a part of the sport right now and just today in the disc golf discussion group a guy posted that in today's game ken climo doesn't even crack the top 25 what are your thoughts on how uh, a Ken Climo would perform in today's game? And do you consider him as the GOAT? You know, one of the tough things, I'm not going to give you a very satisfying answer, because one of the tough things is Ken's game was developed for the courses that we played on. And when your game was developed to play courses where you only had to throw 325 or 350 feet, that game doesn't translate to the courses they play on today. Certainly not the big, long courses. Um, So, but it's not fair to say that he would be competitive because if Ken played in the modern era, would Ken have developed a game for the courses that we play on today? And my guess is he probably would have, which would have been a different game. So it's you're not comparing apples to apples. Um, I think that if Ken played Paul on one of these monster courses, Paul wins. I mean, you just can't get away from an extra 150 feet of distance on a 12,000-foot course. But if you went back in time and played on the courses of the 90s, uh, I think that Ken and Paul both win some of those world championships. I think that's a that's a fair answer. Um, and again, I know it's obviously we're not comparing apples to apples, and we've had this discussion a few times with uh, with some folks on on the course, or excuse me, on this show in the past. Uh, and obviously, like you talked about the the equipment that was being used uh, and the discs difference. Um, I just. I don't know. An amazing player, I believe, is an amazing player. And uh, I think that, you know, he would have figured out a way to win in today's game, just as Paul would have figured out a way to win, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah, I mean, so, and it it is, I mean, these are fun discussions, but like, if you follow mixed martial arts, it's like the greatest greatest mixed martial artist of all time. You can make the argument that it's Hoist Gracie. It is Hoist Gracie. but, but, But Hoist Gracie cannot compete against anybody in the top 20 in his weight class today. 
with as much as the sport has evolved, as well-rounded as people are. I mean, he got Matt Hughes ragdolled him. It wasn't even, it was silly, right? But that Yeah, but that was, that. Hoist was way out of his prime when that happened. That wasn't <laughs> fair. But but the, I, I don't think it makes a difference, though. The skill set, jiu-jitsu has evolved so much in the past 20 years that the Hoist Gracie that competed in 1993 is not competitive today. But if Hoist Gracie was born 25 years later, does he get he would be better than he was back then. So it's a fun discussion, but it's really just, it'll always be just a discussion. Sure. And, you know, Ken Climo threw three aces in one world championship, uh, and Hoist Gracie can grab your knee and pop it out of the socket in 1993 or in 2021. Uh, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. The sport has evolved quite a bit, and there's a lot that comes into play. Uh, I'm a huge boxing fan and a boxing historian as well, and people talk a lot about Rocky Marciano, who, you know, retired undefeated, but he was also bleeding like an absolute sieve by the fourth or fifth round of every single fight. Uh, his fights wouldn't make it five rounds. The, the, they would have stopped them now. So I guess it is, it's tough to tell, um, and it is a fun discussion to have. It's just one of those things that, um, you know, I think there's so many new players in disc golf right now that they just immediately want to say, well, Climo played on small courses, and he didn't play in the same type of competition. But then we have guys like yourself come on, uh, and, and we hear some of the guys that are the, from the old school, and you just hear about all of these amazing players. And I just think it's, it's not fair to say, well, well, Ken was just beating a bunch of schlubs. That's just not accurate. No, but but the level of competition is so superior today, and it's so much deeper. You have a pool of players that are 10 times as large today. You have real athletes playing the sport. And, and when I say real athletes, I don't mean that's not – not to say there weren't real athletes back in the 90s, but now they're all real athletes. They're all – like everybody in the pro tour could compete in another sport if they had taken up another sport. They're, the, the level is so high – you have players competing and learning as juniors. You have YouTube teaching people to play. I mean, the level of play today, we're not talking about the same game. It's just, it's, I mean, it's just not. Fair. No, that's, that's, that's certainly fair. Um, All I want to say on this is 27-year-old Ken Climo, he's taken top 25. Every course, every tournament. Oh, no, 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 no. Full no. stop. Ken, Ken Climo is absolutely 100% competing to win tournaments today. I would say with the exception of a 12,000 foot course where he's losing 200 feet on his drives. And he's still taking top 25. Even he's if he, still taking top. No, yeah, no maybe question. Top if he's, he's still actually probably up there, yep. but on courses that are a more reasonable distance, Ken is one of the people competing to win every single weekend, a hundred percent for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think you can disagree with that. Um, okay, so Kruggy Bear one from Instagram asks, will we see Scott at a pro event in the future? Have you not heard the biggest announcement in all of professional sports? <laughs> no, I, oh my God. I, I'm ready okay, to have so it dropped right here. Come on. Okay, no, I just, I know I just announced this. So I am next year, I am competing in the open division on the entire pro tour for the entire season. Nice. Yeah, oh, I have. That's I, amazing. Uh, I just announced it. So basically what happened is this year, I'm playing tournaments every weekend this year, but I, I set my schedule based on clinics and seminars, going to places in the country I haven't been to. 
And then I pick tournaments in between those. They could be big or small. It didn't really matter. Um, and I happened to be in Kansas around the time of the dynamic discs open. So I went ahead and entered the DDO um, MP50. I ended up finishing second to Yeti, which is fine. But um, when I was at that tournament, I went out to the, the finals um, at the golf course. And after the tournament, I saw everybody leaving. And it was the most empty feeling I've felt ever since I've been playing disc golf. I felt like everybody was leaving me behind. Like I, I felt like I was part of the tour, even though I was playing MP50. I, I, I felt like I was part of it and then got abandoned. And I, and I thought about it for a couple of weeks and I decided I'm going to go out and go on tour one more time. And so um, no more MP50 next year. I'm playing uh, MPO. Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah I'm, gonna I'm be looking fun. forward to that. It's going to be fun. Well, so here's my theory on this. I, I, I thought this out because I, if, if I thought I was going to embarrass myself or if I thought I wasn't competing to win, um, I wouldn't want to play. Um, at the end of last season, because I was out for like six months last season, by the end of last season, I finished the year 1,010. Um, I had some health issues earlier this year, so I dropped down to 990. But, but I, I did last year 1,010, which is you know pretty good for MP50. But this is what I got in my head, is that it was 1,010, but I was basically not practicing. I was showing up to courses, playing tournaments blind um, on courses that are hard to score on and was still shooting 1,010 for, for the year. And so my belief is is that with practice and, you know, actually playing the courses and doing all the things I need to do, I think 1,025 is realistic for me. And a 1,025 player competes to win on the Pro Tour. They're not the favorite, but they are good enough to win if they put it together. And I believe that, um, that that's where I can be. Nice. Well, I'll tell you what. I know, Nate, you and you and Kale might must be pretty excited because you guys aren't going to be be called Pappy and, and the old guys on the tour anymore. Now you got, ha, you got Scott, not even you got close. Scott coming in. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I'm going to be the oldest. Well, Nate, Nate's, a year, Nate's a year younger than me, and I'm tired of reading all of the emails. Like, hey, is Nate ready to start sizzling down now that he's getting a little older? And I'm like, eh, he's in the twilight of his life. What are we talking about here? This is a young man. <laughs> so, uh, so, so Scott's helping. He's helping that out there. Um, all right, let's see. I got a couple fun questions in the email here. Got it. Uh, Zach from Green Bay asks, which current player would Scott say he resembles the most, and will he beat said player in any Elite Series Tour event in 2020 since he'll be back out on tour? Uh, so don't ask me if I'm going to beat the players because my answer will always be yes. I won't Thank be out there. If I, I won't be out <laughs> Thank there. Thank God. I won't be out there if I don't think I will. Um, I would say that, I mean, I've been most compared to Simon, um, you know, with the big shots, the, you know, the personality wise, liking being the center of attention and, and making big throws. I don't make big throws anymore. I'm big. I, I can still throw sidearms like 550, but um, I'm not. No, no I'm big not throwing, throws, right? Just as long I'm as not throwing, I'm not throwing. Yeah, no I'm, not throwing, <laughs> I'm not throwing side or, or backhands like like the like the uh the guys on tour. But probably most like Simon. 
you know, I, I think that's the biggest comparison. Um, I love Simon and uh, I love Eagle. I love me. I, I like everybody on tour. There's no one on tour. I don't like, but Simon and Eagle are probably my two favorite players to watch. Um, I'm a huge Drew Gibson fan too. A uh, huge Ezra fan. God, I don't like it. Just start rallying off people. I like everybody. Yeah, if there is a disc golf god out there, we'll get Scott Stokely and Nico Castro on a lead card together at some point next year. Yeah, um, I, love, I love Nico. You want to hear something interesting about Nico? Please. And, and I'll tell you something great about Nico. So I'm out doing these clinics. I'm out traveling around. And uh, I ask people all the time, hey, have you guys been to any other pros clinics? And, and they always answer that they've been to some. And one of the most common, I always ask, well, who's your favorites? And one of the most common answers I get is Nico. And they love Nico's clinics. And I ask them why. And I've heard this story over and over again. Someone says to me, oh, because when the clinic was over, he spent an hour and a half working with my kid. Like, I, I, I haven't heard that once. I've heard that over and wow. over again, that Nico puts more time in and more effort off the clinic um, to work with the kids and to work with the people that need it. Um, I've heard, I've heard that answer about Nico more than anybody. And that doesn't make the, the, the news stations. And I think it should. Wow. Well, that's pretty cool to hear. All right. We've got uh, Sam sends into the email. He says, uh, hey, Scott, do you remember coming to teach a clinic for our new Hanover Club membership drive? And there being so many people, the whole thing had to be split up into two large groups. If that wasn't the craziest event you've been to, what is? Okay, so I do remember that. That was in North Carolina. Um, they, uh, the more, it was their fundraiser earlier this year. And when, at the beginning of the day, they said, um, someone was like trying to get on a card as a fivesome. And the TD says, no, no, we're only doing foursomes. There's no fivesomes. Assuming there would be 72 players. Um, it turns out that there were 180 that showed up for the first day of club. And they wow. broke into, they broke into two, two groups of, uh, 90 players per, um, that is one of the craziest, I would say the craziest event I ever played um, was probably October Frizz. But you could also say any tournament in the 80s. You know, the, 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 tournaments, the tournaments back in the early days of the sport, uh, I'll, I'll give a real quick synopsis of your typical tournament of the 80s. So first off, uh, the tournament started when the tournament director showed up which could be at the scheduled time. It could be an hour or two later. Uh, if the tournament director brought scorecards, by the way, PDJ tournaments, these are sanctioned events. <laughs> if, the, if the tournament director brought scorecards, you were like, oh, this is, this is pretty professional. Uh, there was no pre-registration, no internet, right? So um, if 100 people showed up, you played in sevensomes. Uh, we played, we had tournaments that ended, you know, the last five holes in the dark. Uh, rules were recommended, not necessarily strictly enforced. Um, it was, everyone treated it like a party because it was. Um, it, it was, it was, um, <laughs> it was basically like a crazy league night, but these are sanctioned tournaments. Um, people weren't wearing shirts and people were partying and people were, yelling and screaming if they played bad 
So yeah, I'd say every tournament from the eighties was the weirdest tournament I ever went to. <laughs> fair enough. Fair oh, enough. Eighties wow. were eighties were an, uh, a weird time. I'm sure. Now, just to go back to our, our previous, you know, you saying that don't ask if you're going to beat them because you say you're going to beat them all. Uh, just to, just so you know, we had Ken Climo on this podcast, and he said that a uh, a prime Ken Climo would beat a prime Paul McBeth. And uh, we don't know if Which that's is- true, but I love that he said it. Of course you should, 100%. If you ask me who the best distance thrower of all time is, I'll, I will tell you absolutely, definitively, it's me. That yes. I am the number one distance thrower who ever lived. However, if you ask Simon or Gay Singer or Wiggins the same question, they would say themselves. And if they didn't say themselves, I would be disappointed. Um, that one of the things that comes with, with being good at sports is you have to have just an unfailing confidence in yourself and belief. So, of course, of course, Ken believes that. If he didn't believe that, he wouldn't be Ken. I know. I was very excited that he answered that way. Um, Nate. Nate Malinsky sends into the email, and this is one that's come up on a few other episodes, and you've been around long enough that I think you could give a good answer to this. What is your Mount Rushmore of disc golf? Uh, The Mount Rushmore of disc golf, that is really easy. I've actually wanted to try an article about this. Um, It's it's Ed Hedrick, of course, because he patented the pole hole, and even if he – didn't do much else to grow the sport besides that. <laughs> um, he still has his place up there for sure. Um, Dan Roddick is on there because Dan was the biggest promoter of flying disc sports, which included disc golf, but disc golf doesn't exist without flying disc sports and Frisbee. Um, Whammo, uh, uh, Dan Roddick was absolutely pivotal in that. Um, you know, he, he represents a lot of people that ran tournaments and stuff, but he was at the, the uh the top of that um and then two disc manufacturers um, i would say dave dunapace at innova um and when i say dave well i'll say dave harold and ski um so dave represents the three of them because innova uh when the eagle came out changed disc golf forever uh and innova has put so much money and time into promoting the sport um I think people have been critical of their motives when they say, um, I've heard people say, well, they're just, it's, it's all business decisions. I I knew Dave and Harold and ski before Innova and all of them played Frisbee every single day because they loved Frisbee. Uh, So the fact that they were able to make a a ton of money off it is just a testament to business, good business decisions, but they they got into it for a love of the sport first and foremost. Um, but then the fourth name would be Jim Kenner at Discraft. Uh, Jim Kenner at Discraft has also put tons of money and promotion into growing the sport, getting courses in the ground. And I don't think people appreciate just how much the rivalry between Discraft and Innova uh, drove the growth of the sport in the nineties. You know, both companies, you know, this is the wonderful thing about capitalism and a free market, like because they were trying to build successful companies and were competing with each other, everyone in the sport benefited from this. And that competition put more courses in the ground and put more tournaments and more money into tournaments than anything. Um, I don't think you can have the end of a guys without Discraft on there. Um, but to me, it's an easy top four. 
um, I, I don't have to think it over. I like that. I think that's a, that's a solid answer right there. Um, I got a question that popped up while you were kind of talking. Now, you, you took off for 13 years. So you left in 2001. You got back in 2014. What was it like seeing these new discs and feeling these new, I mean, like you said, the, the nuke is out now and the destroyer's out. <laughs> and the, I mean, were you, were you blown away by these, you know, 11, 12, even 13 speeds and being able to grab them and throw them? Yeah, absolutely. I was at a tournament in Bailey the first time someone put a nuke in my hand and I threw it. And it went like 50 feet further than my throw should have gone, according to what I know of how discs fly. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is the world's changed. Um, it, yeah, of course. I mean, the disc technology had, had come just so far, uh, along with people learning how to throw so far. You know, uh, if, if those high-speed discs didn't come out, you would still have like all the players would be smashing 500 plus with the speed sevens because they can, they, their technique's so good. Um, so it's, it was half the discs, but it wasn't just the discs that made everybody throw farther by a long stretch. It's the fact that people learned how to throw correctly. Fair enough. All right. Now this is going to be for both of you guys and Nate, feel free not to answer if you don't want to. Um, obviously everyone knows that you are an Innova guy. You said since before they sponsored you that Innova was, was kind of your go-to disc. When you guys are out and you're practicing and you're warming up and are you guys ever asking like, Hey, let me, let me see that prodigy disc and, and let me throw that and see how that feels. Or, Oh, you guys just introduced a, a new drive. And on the flip side are people saying, Hey, let me see that new halo destroyer. And I mean, cause you guys are obviously sponsored by your brands, but you love the sport and you love watching it evolve. Are you guys ever grabbing other companies plastics just to throw them and, and see what they're like? Uh, go ahead, Nate. Yeah, I would say I don't th I don't throw them, but I definitely am like, oh, cool, that's a new one. Let me feel that and take a look, see what the plastic is, see what it looks like. But I don't have much desire to throw them. I'll be honest. I uh, I I am interested in seeing what they feel like, what the shape is, what the plastic looks like, what the even what the artwork looks like on top of the discs when there's new stuff coming out. But no, not not throw them. No. Yeah, and, and that's understandable. I mean, you have a, a really good business relationship and a loyalty to, to that, and that's that's exactly what you should be doing, right? I mean, you, you can respect other companies, but don't ask your opinion. You're gonna you're gonna go to the company that you're sure have this relationship with. I just I just oh. don't even really ever throw other stuff. Not I'm just I'm not even curious really because <laughs> it's just like I'm just a you know, a guy. I'm throwing my stuff. I like it. I got a bunch of them in the closet, so I'm still throwing them, you know. And it's like I I don't have any desire to throw other stuff. I'm happy to watch other people do it. Neither do I. Innova, the choice of champions. <laughs> there yes. you go, Jared. <laughs> and and I um, I'm about to make an announcement, but I actually am working with a number of different manufacturers. Um, I have a, a number of tour series discs that are about to uh, hit the market uh, in the extremely new future. Everything's done, inked. It's it's a it's a done deal. I'm just timing the announcement of it. So I am throwing a uh, a mixed bag with a number of different manufacturers discs in there, uh, all of them tour series discs. Uh, so, but I. Like I like everybody's discs. I like everybody. Like 
<laughs> I, I have a, my, I don't know. I just, I'm friends with everybody, I think. And, and even the disc manufacturers that I've maybe competed against over the years, um, like Innova, I mean, you, you, you'll never hear me say anything but positive things about them. I mean, they did so much for the sport I love and did so much for disc technology that I have nothing but respect for them. And, um, and I'll defend them to people. Like I said, they, they started the company out of love, but I don't throw their discs because I'm throwing other company stuff. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, I have a great relationship with Innova, obviously, but yeah, nothing but respect for everybody else and nothing but good experiences with all the other the companies that I've had the pleasure of talking to. Yeah, for sure. All right, that's that's fair enough. Well, since you put Innova over so strong, I'll go ahead with this question since it's popped up so many times. Talk to us about your love of the Berg. Oh, the Berg is the word. Uh, the Berg is my putter. I am I am a better putter today than I've ever been in my entire life because I, uh, well, not just because of the disc, not the disc. It's not the arrow, it's the archer, right? But uh, the Berg changed my life because I can throw uh, certain types of finesse shots with it better than I've ever been able to throw before, but I also putt with it very well. I love the Berg. And it is going to be... Um, It'll be announced, but it's not a secret that, that that's going to be my putter um, and the most popular tour series disc that I have. It's going to be the Berg. So, yeah. Fair enough. I love that disc. Yeah. I, we probably got about five different questions uh, asking about you and, and that disc. Now, I know we've taken a lot of your time. Another question that popped up from multiple folks through email and, uh, and through Instagram and social media. Uh, everybody wants to know who you think you don't have to rate them in order, but who are the five best sidearm players of all time? Well, I, I think I'm the best. We, we already kind of covered that. That is my opinion. Yes. Um, I think that, um, see, and, and I don't have as much depth on uh, the pro tour as people that are out there every day. Um, but I would say Nate is one of the top five. All right. I would say that Eagle. Um, I would say Coling. And... God, it's Barsby, Ricky. Um, that's tough. Yeah. Like maybe, can I say six? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to, I got no problem with it. Okay. I'll say six then. So that, that would be my, that would be my six. I think right now Eagle has the best sidearm on tour. Um, but I would love to throw head to head against him just sidearms I mean, he's gonna outdrive me with distance and putting um he's a better putter than i am but i i would right now today i would throw a hundred shots sidearm versus his hundred shot sidearm ctp for money I, I i would go head to head against him jonathan gomez where are you what this is a jomez video that's ready to go so i i i need to see these this hundred shot throw yeah. off between well hold on wait a second i'm 51 years old let's not do 100 My yeah 100 is a lot how far are let's we talking say, how far is this ctp i would say 25 shots inside under 400 feet i would uh, between three and 450 um no i i mean i i feel really good about my my sidearm even today 
you know, like if I'm shooting 1,010 rated or 1,020 rated golf and I'm not the best putter out there and I'm throwing backhands 150 feet short of some of the pros, but I'm shooting 1,020, those strokes are coming somewhere and it's from my sidearm. So I, I would put my sidearm up there with anybody. And if I'm wrong, you know, I've, I've hit that age where I tell myself things and believe what I tell myself. To, it makes me happy. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, my sidearm to this day is like, I, I don't miss gaps. So I, I would put it up there. Oh, I love hearing that so much. Well, Scott, we've taken up a, a ton of your time. Before we let you go, take a second and let all of our listeners know how can they keep up with you? Where can they find you? Websites, social medias, T-shirts you're selling, appearances you got coming up. Go ahead and plug all your stuff, man. Absolutely. Uh, so you can follow me. Um, the easiest place is scottstokely.net. Uh, of course, my YouTube channel, Facebook, Instagram. You can, I mean, I'm pretty visible. You can find me anywhere. Uh, I have, uh, I scheduled 76 full day seminars across the country this year. They are all sold out. I think there's like two spots left in Boise in a couple months, but they're, I, they'll sell out. So all my seminars are sold out, uh, for the year. Uh, but I have my first teacher going out teaching the Scott Stokely disc golf method. Uh, my plug would be, um, me and Nate and Paul and Yeti and, you know, fill the blank on teachers or top pros out there. We all, I would say 97% agree on what correct form looks like. Like there's a right and a wrong way to throw. There's a pretty solid consensus that I think is right. What I teach with my method is the process to get there. Because if you just watch a video on how to do something correctly, there's a gap and most people can't watch a YouTube video and do that thing. The pro does. I have developed a method after all these years that actually can take every player I work with from where they are to throwing the correct way. It's a process. Um, I have now trained a teacher who's out uh, starting next week is teaching seminars using the Scott Stokely disc golf method. Uh, his name's Philip Bartholomew. Uh, from North Carolina. He's a high-level golfer, but he's also been teaching disc golf full-time for three years. And we'll be announcing a bunch of dates for Phil. Uh, I could not speak any higher of him. Um, or any, I mean, he's he's good. He's very, very, very good teacher. And he's bought into the method that I've developed. And so he's going to be teaching seminars under my brand. That is probably the most exciting thing happening right now is that uh, Phil, we're going to be announcing a bunch of dates for Phil's seminars that if you sign up for, you will absolutely be a better player after the seminar for sure. Uh, all the dates at scottstokely.net. By the way, join the mailing list and you'll get a mailing when those come out. Um, I got all my tour series discs come out. I've, I've, my disc golf book is at, at Amazon. It's also on Audible, the audio version I read myself. And I have a golf cart and four bags hitting the market in about a month. Uh, brand under my name as well. So you'll be sick of me. You'll, you'll be sick of hearing about me. You'll have no problem finding me. Not possible. Not possible. So uh, it sounds like you're staying busy. And uh, I, I know we've been trying to put this together now for a few months to get you on the show here. And it's just been some some back and forth. And I'm, I'm happy that you uh, were able to find some time in, in your, your hotel there in Michigan and, and come and chat with us. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate it, guys. Nate, I'm, I'm one of your biggest fans. Um, I, I, I've 
regularly have written you after tournaments and even tough losses to tell you I'm a, I'm a fan. I don't do that for everybody. I don't, it's not a token gesture. I do every tournament. Um, but I, I, I'm a fan, I, but I'm a fan of you as a human being uh, more than as a player. I mean, you are the, like you epitomize what a professional disc golfer or professional athlete should be. And I think that you are someone that the kids can emulate and that the sport is lucky to have. So I'm happy that you're doing so well and I hope you just keep crushing it. And so it, it really is an honor to be on your show. I mean, both of you guys, but I've, I've known Nate longer. <laughs> no, that's fair. Uh, that's fair, man. But I appreciate, nobody. I appreciate it so much. And uh, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. And obviously I've definitely have appreciated those messages over the years and getting the chance to get to know you a little bit better. And yeah, man, I want to just congratulate you on the success as of late and getting out there and, and teaching people disc golf and doing good things for the special needs communities. It's incredible. And I, and I hopefully share a card with you next season at the Disc Golf Pro Tour. Absolutely. And I, and I, I have every intention of beating you. Yeah, bring it on. All right. It, it's on. <laughs> Thanks, Awesome. <man. laughs> uh, Scott Stokely did not disappoint uh, that guy has a story unlike any other um, from starting at seven years old taking 13 years off 51 years old and he's going to be playing in the MPO next year I had a lot of fun with today's interview man yeah he he has definitely been around for it all and just an interesting character crazy story with you know where his life took him and where he is now and yeah, looking forward to seeing him throw out there on the Pro Tour. I mean, obviously he's not throwing any big shots anymore, just 550 with the forehand. But, you know, as long as, he's, as long as he keeps it nice and controlled, I think he'll do okay. 550 with the forehand is blowing my mind. Yeah, that's just unreal distance. And I'll tell you, my, my two boys, one little banged up right now. The other one's really got the itch to get out and play a lot. Um, my 12 year old has been watching some old Nate Sexton and Paul, uh, Paul Macbeth clinics on YouTube. And I didn't really think too much about it. He's, he's watching them and I'm like, yeah, you know, he's just trying to bond with dad. And so, uh, Scott Stokely almost wasn't our guest today because I took him out and I said, you beat me, kid, and you are the next guest on running it with Nate Sexton. And, uh, <laughs> it, it, it got close, man. I, I can't believe it. So, uh, just from watching some YouTube videos and, and watching you and, uh, and he's, he's almost better than me. He even has like the little, uh, he gets the legs going in the back of the tee box before he even gets going now. So yeah. he's, uh, he, he's, he's coming for you, man. Nice. He's, he's, he's getting ready. So, uh, guys, super excited about, uh, a bunch of cool stuff coming our way. Uh, special thanks again, uh, Fisher disc golf, double G craft jerky, VII apparel. You guys can get a running it with Nate Sexton Jersey coming up. I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, all of the shares and comments, it, it really means so much to us. And as long as you guys keep enjoying it, we're going to keep putting this show out and bringing you guys some awesome guests. Nate, Scott Stokely's coming back next year. I don't think layups are an option. Yeah, the, increasingly it's it's starting to feel that way. I, you know, I guess I'm going to have to run it. 